Welcome to Why Did You Run, an occasional podcast about why someone chooses to run for elected office. Rather than focusing directly on their political views, we're searching to understand that magic moment when thinking about running for office became a reality. Today we're speaking with Luke Klippinger, a member of the Maryland House of Delegates. He represents portions of South Baltimore, including Riverside, where he lives. Luke was first elected in 2010 and began serving in January 2011. He's also an assistant state's attorney in Anne Arundel County, where he seeks justice for victims of domestic violence and property programs. Welcome to the program, Luke. Hi. Hi. Very happy to be here. So you grew up in Baltimore. In fact, your parents bought what we call a dollar house. At the time, the city would sell you a house for a dollar with the promise to renovate it. You were, you were kind of young then. But I'm wondering if that was a big deal for your family growing up and, and what you remember about it. Well, yeah, we bought uh, the house in Reservoir Hill. Um, I didn't buy it. My parents bought it for, for a dollar um, in 1974 uh, at really the lead edge of the homesteading program. And we were part of a number of houses that were sold as part of a what was called the Scattered Site Homesteading Program. And in Otterbein and in other neighborhoods, they took pretty much whole neighborhoods and, and did homesteading. We were one of two houses on a block that were sold for a dollar. And um, I remember dad stripping floors. Uh, you know, we, we basically moved into different levels of the house as those, those levels were finished. And uh, it was a, it's a, a big old house. My, my uh, family moved out of there in uh, 2000 and, uh, 2006. So, so did that experience and, and the stories surrounding it shape your your thinking about government knowing that the house was was part of this program yeah i mean it it was a big part of the reason why why politics and and why working in government has been something that's been very interesting uh, to me look when, when i moved in when i was two i wasn't right. thinking about <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about the impact of scattered site homesteading <laughs> on on the rejuvenation of a neighborhood reservoir right. hill has been a neighborhood that has always been on the right, getting ready to turn the corner. It's been getting ready to turn the corner for about 40 years. And actually, it may have made the turn now. I think that there, there's, there are a lot of good things happening in, in Reservoir Hill. But having said that, growing up, I mean, I, I, I didn't know, you know a lot about uh, politics growing up, but I, I was very interested politically because I could kind of see the world changing right around me. Mm-hmm. The neighborhood was at that time when I first moved in it was more I would say lower uh, maybe a little middle income uh, Mm -hmm. predominantly African-American you could see what happened to the neighborhood when the jobs went away from Beth Steele when the jobs went away from Beth Steele there were a lot of people who worked at Beth Steele who who lived in in Reservoir Hill and in other parts of West Baltimore and when those jobs went away you could just sort of see the foundations start to wobble you play out on the streets, and 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 uh, you know I, I I can remember when when crack and heroin started to show up in, in the neighborhood. So they were selling drugs on the corner. My my mom used to sit on the second floor and take the uh, license plate numbers and give them to the give them to the police who didn't do anything about it. In in all of these things that are happening, there was some impact that government that government had. You could see the the some of the social safety net programs in the 80s, you could watch them being ripped away in some parts of, uh, with some families in, in Reservoir Hill in, in the 80s during the Reagan administration. 
you could see where the city was trying to 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 prop up and, and keep the neighborhood kind of moving in the right direction but the poor performance of city services just kept you know piling on over and over again but we became veterans of calling our city council person at the time mary pat clark at the uh, in the beginning my first political activity was uh, going with my mom to an ndc the new democratic coalition uh two that was seeking to 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 sort of break the machine at that time in the in the 70s and 80s i was uh sealing envelopes when i was six or seven and when i was uh 14 my mom then realized that the best thing that i could do was she dropped me off at 25th and Maryland Avenue every every day, and I would sit there and answer the phones for Mary Pat Clark City Council campaign. So it was almost like uh, it was daycare. It was, it was right, great. It was that after school activity? So so you you know so you build those connections over yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. And and you went to Baltimore City Schools in the in 70s and 80s. I know a lot of people have very strong opinions about the decline of Baltimore City Schools over the last couple of decades. But I'm wondering what it was like for you. You went uh, to Roland Park and to Poly, I believe. I, um, my dad was uh, a teacher in Baltimore County, actually, so he did a reverse commute every day and, and went out on the bus to uh, Randallstown for, for many years. So public schools were very important to, my, to me and my family. Um, yeah, I, I started off at Harford Heights over at Broadway and North, uh, over now where it used to be a Sears there, and now it's, it's a district court building over there on the east side. And then uh, Roland Park... Um, I, I was able to get into Roland Park uh, through, at the time, their gifted and talented program, and then uh, Polly after that. You know, there, there were a lot of people who, who could have made the choice, who did make the choice to leave during the, certainly the 70s, certainly the 80s and, and early 90s, and my parents decided to stay, and they sent us to, to city schools. And, and that was an amazing experience. It was, it was a you know, these are, are, were, and in my opinion, still are schools that provide a great education. And not to put too fine a point on it, and I don't want to wander too far into the politics of it, but, but I was incredibly fortunate. I don't question that ever. I was fortunate to get into Roland Park, which was one of the better elementary and middle schools, and then I, uh, I was very fortunate to, to get into Poly, you know, the best school in the city of Baltimore. I, I was able to benefit from those things. And there are a lot of people in the city who aren't able to benefit from those things. And that was clear to me from the first day that I walked into school, the first day I went to school, where I, I was put on a, a little van and taken to Harford Heights, the first K through three. And the kids who were living up the street were going to John Eager Howard or, and then went to Lamel for middle school. You, you knew that there was a difference. Mm-hmm. You, as a kid, you knew there was a difference you saw in the test scores and everything else that there, there was a difference. And, and it's in seeking ways to eliminate those differences and to give every kid a, a, a way forward and a, and a better way forward is one of the things that, that drove me also to public service. Mm. So, so after Polly, though, you, you uh, headed off to Indiana to Earlham College to study politics. Why did Hustling you- Quakers. Hustling Quakers? They are the Hustling Quakers. They're not the Fighting Quakers, because that would be wrong. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> yes, I went to Earlham. Um, Why the Midwest? My grandfather uh, turned me on to, to Earlham. I, I was looking for a smaller school. 
he was familiar with Elton Trueblood, who is as close to a Quaker theologian, which is a little bit of a misnomer. There's not really, there are Quaker, I, I, he's a Quaker theologian in my mind. Um, and, and he taught at Earlham for a little while. They named the field house after, uh, after, after him. And so my grandfather, who was a Presbyterian minister, said, why don't you go take a look at, at that place? I went and visited, and the other schools, I, you know, I, I had gotten accepted to Maryland, and that would have been fine. I got accepted to bigger school. There was just something about it. You know, Reservoir Hill is a tough neighborhood to grow up in. Richmond is, uh, Richmond, Indiana is where Earlham is, and it has its own set of, set of challenges, but it was different, and it was new, and the community at Earlham, it's a deliberate community uh, of, of uh, students at Earlham where you it's just a very, very wonderful and unique place where people challenge each other, where people people learn as much from each other as they do from from the professors. It held a, it always will hold a, a warm place in in my heart. So yeah, East Central Indiana, I, I, Richmond, Indiana, the the home of uh, at the time Tom Raper's Tom Raper RVs, the biggest RV dealer in in the in the Midwest. Well, well, he must be doing well now. They're making such a comeback. They are. Them. Apparently, everybody's buying RVs. I yeah. don't know what that's about. But yeah. yes, I, I lived out there for a while. And then... Um, so, Indiana is also where you had your first real political paid experience as well. You ran the re-election campaign for Lee Hamilton and worked with uh, Congressman Baron Hill as well, both Democrats of Indiana. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering what all those experiences would like... Uh, what, what did you learn from them? Well, I mean, my, my experience in politics had been going door to door with Mary Pat Clark at, with row houses uh, here in, in Baltimore City or in houses that weren't that far apart from each other. Um, but you, you kind of learn how it works and how you do it and, and the importance of getting out and meeting with people and talking to people and listening to people and taking, if, in case of the volunteer or even especially if you're the candidate hearing what they have to say and kind of bringing that information in and trying to be responsive. Uh, Lee Hamilton at the time um, had been in the House for 32 years. He was the chair of the House International Relations Committee and was a larger-than-life figure. There, there is a highway named after Lee Hamilton in southern Indiana, um, a larger-than-life figure that got a lot of good work done. Um, but in the early 90s, um, that part of the world, it got a little bit harder. It was an ancestrally Democrat part of the world that was swinging to the Republicans, and it has continued to swing to the Republicans. But he he just worked hard. He worked hard, and we all worked hard. We all, um, my first experience with, with him is you, you were in every parade in 21 counties and three time zones. And it was three time zones because Indiana at the time didn't have daylight savings time. So it was Eastern Daylight, Eastern Standard, and Central Daylight. You learned about every nook and cranny. I had volunteer meetings in the middle of literally, and I, I was at least 10 miles from any kind of major population center. And, and that's nothing compared to what you see in the further west, but whatever. You, you got to meet a lot of people. And for me, coming from more of a progressive background, being in, in the Midwest, you get exposed to, okay, well, not everybody agrees with you. Some people disagree with you. And it's the good people who can figure out how to bring the people who don't agree together to find something that works for everybody. Maybe it isn't perfect, but it works for everybody. There are some times when you also, you know, you stand 
stand on the principles for what you think is right. But, but in a lot of government, what I took from working for Lee is it's that collegial atmosphere. And frankly, the same way for Barron. I was his um, campaign manager in, 20, in uh, 1998, and nobody thought we were going to win. They thought the district was just getting too conservative, and we won. We won three times until um, 2004 when he lost, and then he won again in 2006. But at the, it was at, after 2004 I got my law degree and started to head back to Maryland. All right, which which you did in at the University of, of Louisville. Yes, which which Louisville in, in Kentucky is is a fairly lighter lighter red. It's blue, a little blue. It's well, bluish, more yeah. or less blue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I'm sort of wondering here you are. Um, why didn't you follow them to Washington and to being a legislative assistant on the Hill? And I really like the people. I liked. When I worked for Lee, I, I, you know, I was going to these events for the first time, and I would just drive and drive and drive. It was this huge district that was like 300 miles from one end to the other, and and I would go to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, and I just I got to really like the people. I got to get a good handle on the issues that I was hearing about, and I enjoyed that part of it. Um, prior, briefly prior to the time that I, I worked for Lee, after I graduated from Earlham. I worked for the Indiana Department of Commerce, and I helped communities, small communities in Indiana, get um, community development block grant funding for water and sewer systems. I got to know too much about um, how little rural uh, water systems are funded and, and uh, how they work. Poop and gravity, that's pretty much it. But, <laughs> but having said that, that kind of work on the, you know, that, that, rubber meets the road work was incredibly appealing to me those things that have direct impacts on people's quality of life appeals to me and still appeals to me that is is kind of why i um i stayed out there i could have come back um had the opportunity to come back and it's not that i didn't want to come back and i did i i came back i mean i i i, I did want to come back but at that point i I felt like there was more that I could learn and that I could do in that part of the world. And, and we actually, uh, we accomplished, uh, the congressman uh, accomplished quite a bit during during those six years. So what was, what was the moment when you said, nope, I'm, I'm heading back to Baltimore? Um, he lost and I stayed uh, in, uh, I li was living in New Albany, which is right across from Louisville. I, I stayed there for a little while. I was in my last uh, one of my last two semesters in law school, and I actually I was kind of looking looking for work, and I was ready I was ready to move home. Kind of felt like I wanted to get closer to my parents, and and wanted to wanted to get yeah just closer to family more more than anything. Dad had suffered a, an injury uh, uh, prior to my time coming back, and so I kind of wanted to get closer to home anyway. Sure. I had a couple campaign opportunities that popped up, um, and. Uh, Ended up working in 2016 um, for Tom Perez, who ran for attorney general in Maryland. Didn't quite finish the campaign, but he uh, he uh, he ran in the Democratic primary until the Court of Appeals said that uh, he didn't meet the qualifications. That was 2016. 2006. 2006. I'm sorry, 2006. Because by, by 2016, you're 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 you're. I'm you're in the zoomed. legislature. Yeah, you're, yeah you're I was going up. forward. I'm yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. Well, well, so, so, so did you, did, did, when you came back, was, was the 
Anne Arundel, assistant attorneys. Was that the first job back? So no, I um, I I worked. Uh, I came back. I worked on a couple campaigns uh, briefly for Paula Hollinger and then for Tom Perez. And then after Tom's campaign, I I had in in between. I'd finished my last semester of law school, and I said, okay, I'm ready to take the bar and let's take this thing out for a spin. I. I I was uh, the campaign manager for Stephanie Rawlings Blake's city council president campaign in 2007, and right after that, I and no offense to Stephanie Rawlings Blake, but I, I, I I'm ready to try something else. I wanted to, I, I had been working in campaigns for you know about 10 years at that point, and I was ready to stop and take the law degree for a spin and actually do something in the law. And, and break out of that. Uh, so that's really not a whole lot of time between Stephanie Rawlings, Blake and City Council, finishing law, starting work mm -hmm. with Anne Arundel, and then all of a sudden 2010 10. And you must have been thinking about that in 08 and 09. When did, what, how, when, did it, when did it start to first enter your head that you wanted to run for the House of Delegates? In 2007, I was, um, that was sort of, that was the beginning of the, the lead edge of the Great Recession. So at that point, I, I was fortunate to have a job in, in the law, that was a really, really tough time in the economy, as we all know. It was a really, really tough time. And so I, I spent a better part of 2007, 8, 9, really getting into the nuts and bolts of being a state's attorney. I, I didn't know what was going to come next. I, I, at that point, I, was, um, I lived in Riverside in 08, 09. I lived in Federal Hill prior to that. Um, I had gotten a little involved with the Neighborhood Association, but I moved to Riverside right after I started getting involved there. So kind of had gone to a couple neighborhood meetings. In 2009, it became, it started to be, look like there might be an opening in, in the legislature, but I was, I was learning a lot as a state's attorney. In the first couple of years in Anne Arundel, you, you work in district court, and, and so I saw a large number of domestic violence cases. Got to work in that very, very difficult area of, of the law and difficult area of, uh, when it comes to prosecution because there's a lot of thought going on in some of these cases. And in district court, though, you also have the d domestic violence ones are, the, are, I would argue, those in drunk driving cases in the lower level district court are you know kind of the most serious. And the DD cases probably... Uh, order of magnitude more serious. And then you had parents who didn't send their kids to school and some other things. But you got I, I was able to get a good foundation for how that how the criminal justice system worked. Sort of seeing it from the other side. Here you are out in Indiana talking with people about water systems and all these right. other things and then and then coming in and but still still staying very very close to, to people right in in this position right and that that was what was important to me more than anything is you got you got to have that kind of that that daily connection and and look the the connection in some cases are with people who are defendants who don't want to be there at all and you know i, I don't want to see them either i mean I, I i hope every time that we get a conviction that i don't see the person ever again back in the courtroom Having said that, I, I kind of built that that experience and took time away from from politics a little bit to 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 learn something new and to get to get a different experience. Um, and in politics, though, 
sometimes these opportunities pop up and you can't really control when that happens. And uh, Delegate Krishiak was uh, at the time showing uh, some indication that she wasn't going to run again. And I felt like I, you know, I, I felt like I had something to offer. I felt like that I, I have a lot of different experiences growing up in Baltimore, going to Baltimore City Public Schools. But yeah, having some experience not living in Baltimore, having experience seeing how other places do it. But then coming back and getting real experience in an area that up until, you know, including especially right now in, in the area of criminal justice and crime, that those were all reasons that I felt, okay, well, maybe this is something I, I need to look look at. You must have been able to put a campaign together fairly quickly. You, 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 you pretty much coming into this as an expert in campaign infrastructure and activities. I, I, I don't know that I'm an expect, expert. I, I, I have a lot of people who would criticize that comment. No, I, I had done it before. And, and sometimes that's actually harder because you need to, the, the challenge with the campaigning side is you become your own best staff person. And the, the whole idea is you want to, you need to build out. And so I talked to, I talked to friends, I talked to people just to kind of get a sense of, do you think I should do this? Do you think this is something that you'd be willing to help out with? And I, I had a lot of a lot of good friends step up and volunteer. We we started knocking on doors in uh, 2009 and didn't stop. The um, haven't stopped. <laughs> each district here in Maryland has three delegates, yeah. and and you came in third out of three after, behind two incumbents, which right. which was probably the obvious outcome or the obvious yeah. optimistic winning outcome. When you won, how, how did you feel? I was, um, we were at my house. We were getting ready to go and meet up with uh, Delegates Hammond and, and Mikhail over in Canton. And um, I got a call from um, Bill Romani, who ran in that election. Great, great person. He called and and he conceded and we had a little, a little phone call and, and the phone call ended and I just remember sitting on the couch. And nobody was around. Everybody was in the kitchen. And I had stepped away to take a call. And I just kind of sat there and went, wow, that, that, that just happened. And, and you, 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 you're, you've been out knocking for you, my, me and my friends, family, you know, for, for 10 months. And it just kept going and going and raising the money and doing everything that you, you needed to do. And it, it's just this sort of incredible, okay, all right. So now what happens? And and you and and even though I had been involved with campaigns in the past, I mean, you still kind of look up and go, "All right, um, I'm going to thank everybody who helped me." And I tried to send notes to thank everybody who helped me, and then just tried to figure out which end is up and 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 figure out you know how's this going to work with my job. One of the challenges in the, being a part-time legislator is. You got to go away for ninety days, and and I'm fortunate because I still work in Anne Arundel that I can still get over to the office a little bit. It, it's it's challenging though because that rightly takes up a big a big chunk of your time. I was so, going to say for folk, for folks who don't know, Maryland legislature meets for ninety days mm -hmm. at the start of of each year, 
and then and then you sort of go away and go back to the district and constituent services and paying attention to things that are still going on. But right. the, but the bulk of debate and an actual bill passage happens during ninety days. Those ninety days. Yeah. Unless a special session is called, which which yes. is, has that happened since you've been a delegate? Yes, it did three times in my first term. It hasn't happened during um, Governor Hogan's administration. How many times have you stood for re-election now? This will be my third election as a delegate. Yes, and I I ran in ten, fourteen, and eight. Now I'm going to run in eighteen. Does it does it get easier? It doesn't get easier. I, I mean, it's easier in the sense that I have, well, and I've made a point of walking every every year, some part, if not all, of, of the district. It's easier in the sense that you see, you can kind of put people in specific places. When I see people on the street, oh, what street do you live in? Oh, you live there, and we talked about this. Um, it gets easier in the sense that you have a better handle on what the communities are concerned about. You can kind of deepen that relationship with individuals, with neighborhoods, and and get down into the weeds a little bit better. And that makes you a better legislator, and it makes you a better community member, frankly. But that that is easier. It's a challenging job. It, it, it's a challenging job. It it is it is very rarely is it easy. But it's it's fun and it's it's engaging and it's and it is challenging and it's challenging in a good way and 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 it's that challenge that has made me want to run again. So what's what's the one thing about campaigning or putting a campaign together that you really don't like? So like filling out a report, the financial, the fundraising. Fundraising. <laughs> we 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 all hate that. Um, I mean, look, for some people, it's easier than others. For some people, it's easier than others. And, and I mean, my, my family, great family, we didn't necessarily come from a whole lot of money. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I had to rely on, on friendships and relationships that I had built for many years. And some of them were back in Indiana. And, and you just, you go through and you call people and you pester people and, and try to raise money. And, and it's hard. And it's increasingly difficult because the costs keep, keep rising for this and, and that, the rules change too and the rules change and people can kind of they can spend a, a a lot of money from outside the district and you know what that's fine ultimately i don't i can't be worried about what other people are doing um with their fundraising i can worry about what i'm doing and and you 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 raise the money and you and you do it to tell people what you've done so, so I think most people in the district know that you're an openly gay man, but I, I also know that you were an elder in, in your church, mm -hmm. which many folks may, may not know. How do those experiences work? How did that work in, in, your, in your decision? Have you, have you always been a religious person? You're, you said your grandfather was a... Presbyterian a minister, yeah. Um, I went to Brown Memorial from when I was five or six. Uh, Brown Memorial actually split into two churches. Uh, one downtown and one at, uh, just north of the city line in Woodbrook. Um, and they didn't think that our church downtown, which was on, on Park Avenue in Bolton Hill, just south of where we lived in Ro Reservoir Hill, they didn't think we'd survive. But my mom and a lot of really great people, uh, Linda and John Burton, a whole range of different people, had kept the church open. So, you know, I went, I, I went to church a lot 
as a kid. I don't know. I, I became an elder after I moved back from Indiana. And, and, you know, one of the things at that time was I was, I was still in the process of coming out. And I told my, I told my pastor, I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm gay. Can I still do this? And the Presbyterian Church at that point, it was in sort of a middle range of not really accepting, but not forbidding, but sort of forbidding. But Brown Memorial, and I said this when I was there, it's, it's always been home. It's just, it's the community where I grew up. And it's the set of kind of the, the set of beliefs that I, I grew up. Brown Memorial has been a leader in social justice issues, has been a leader in economic justice issues, um, and in fighting to sometimes remind all of us that, that, the, that the voices that we need to hear are the voices that are, that are the smallest, that are the quietest, that, that are least likely to be heard. And so for me, it, it was, that is, I think consistent with being uh, with being gay, and that for many years, for for centuries, uh, gay and lesbian and transgender people have been uh, discriminated against, have been marginalized, have been pushed to the side, and raising those voices up and raising people up um, has been a big part of the reason, another big part of the reason that I've run, and and so I don't I don't see. My, my membership or my leadership at, at Brown Memorial is being in any way inconsistent with that. So you also had a cancer scare mm-hmm. a while back. And More than a scare. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I know that, that that has affected some of the legislation that, you, that you've introduced sure. in, in terms of paid time off. Did that scare, does it continue to play a, a thought in where you might go politically mm-hmm. in the future? How does, it, how, does it, how does it shape the way you look at the future, both both at the House of Delegates and, and the other parts of your life. Well, I, I'll I'll give a, the quick story and then and then go to the question. Two thousand sixteen, after the end of session, and, and and now more and more, we can sort of identify how how this was actually maybe was there. It certainly was there prior to that. Um, I was very tired, not able to bounce back as quickly as as I had when I was younger. And I thought, well, maybe this is age, but then it really wasn't age. Um, but I, I was having a hard time even getting around. And what kind of finding out later is that I think my white blood cells were boxing out my red blood cells and making it harder for me to get around. Uh, but I would still knock on doors and play through the pain. Um, I went into my doctor in June of last year, and he said, um, yeah, we, we need to take a look at your blood. Um, I didn't realize exactly how gray I was looking, but I, looking at pictures now, realizing I was really not in a good place. And so he took the blood, and they called me back in the same day and said, yeah, we're seeing a white blood cell count that is off the charts. That's, you know, four times strep throat, more than that. And um, we need to get a bone marrow biopsy and figure out what comes next. Um, So after a week at the... um, at the University of Maryland, they were able to identify a very rare um, form of leukemia that affects only three to five percent of the of the population of people who have leukemia. Now, I'm incredibly fortunate because I um, I can treat it with a pill. I didn't have to do chemotherapy. 
I take a pill every day and will probably take a pill the rest of my life to address it. My cancer is under control. It's not, it's in remission um, as much as this kind of cancer can be in remission. Um, and I don't have any of the, really haven't had to deal with too many side effects or anything else. So I've been very fortunate with that. Um, I will say last, last year as I started the treatment and started taking the pills, I'll say this. Every morning I take the pill. People yell at me if I don't take the pill. So I take the pill. And I yell at me if I don't take the pill. You become aware. Um, I, t I was telling people, you know, when I went to, into the hospital, um, I went to, um, <laughs> I had, I, I carry a bag with me that has all the stuff that I need to read and everything else. And I, I just remembered sitting in there and I'm sitting there with an IV um, the Great British Baking Show is on. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that, but I but it kept me going. And I just remembered taking out my to-do list and throwing it away. And just going through, you know, something vaguely cathartic about it. And you become very aware that every moment is is a blessing. And every single moment is is one that shouldn't be wasted so every day i take a pill and it's kind of this ongoing reminder of you know what are what are you doing today and how are you using today you know to and it'll sound hokey but how, how are you using it to to benefit others how are you what are you doing today um because every day is significant because we only get so many and we don't know how many there are and so you a, a friend said, you know, you get a clock, you get a new clock and, you know, you get handed a clock with plenty of time on it in this case, but it's a clock that will run out someday. And so it, it makes you very deliberate about what you want to do and, and, and where you want to go. So to answer your question, um, despite that, I, I don't know what comes next. These oppor the opportunity may come to, to do something new and different in politics. That's great. I, and I'll, I, I hope to continue to show to people that I, you know, I'm, what I believe I'm doing a good job in this, in this job. And if they think I'm doing a good job in this job, maybe they think I can help out in another way. If that's the case, great. But I take it day by day and week by week and month by month, try to do a little bit more, uh, little bit more every day my uh, my partner Patrick would say that I, I uh, that I didn't slow down too much and I haven't slowed down too much but he wishes that I would slow down a little bit more Luke thanks for speaking with us today Luke Clippinger is a Maryland delegate and you can learn more about him at luke46.org and we'll be back with another conversation in a few weeks until then this is Steve Yasko and this is why did you run <laughs>